started today, I want to make a small bulletin correction. Um, if, you, if you look in your bulletin, it says that the title of this sermon is um, The Covenant of Grace. Uh, today, we will not be talking about the covenant of grace. It's very important we don't um, confuse the covenant of common grace, which we will be talking about today, with the covenant of grace. They're two very different things. One is um, the covenant of grace is given to God's church, to God's people, to God's elect. And the covenant of grace is a different kind of, kind of, kind of covenant, and it's for all living things, all created things. So just wanted to make that clarification before we more move forward. And if you would turn with me today to Genesis chapter 8. We'll um, have quite a long reading today, so bear with me. We're going to go all the way through Genesis chapter 8. Our um, sermon text is going to be Genesis chapter 8 and 9, ending chapter 9 and verse 17. So almost two chapters. Uh, so, so do please bear with me as I read this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed, and the rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to a rest on the mountains of Aria. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he set forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly produced olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred in the six hundred and first year of the of in the six hundred and first year and the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing. That is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and they that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast and every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal. And some of every clean bird and offered offering and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and night, summer and heat, 
summer and summer and winter, um, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly upon the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and the beasts of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth. And the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant. That is, that, that is between me and you. And every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds. I will see and remember that every, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. Well, it's quite a story. As we come today to this third sermon, um, going through the Old Testament from a covenant perspective... We have before us the conclusion of probably one of the most repeated and discussed stories in the Old Testament, perhaps in the entire Bible, the story of Noah and the ark. And as you may have noticed, uh, much attention concerning the story of Noah focuses on the flood narrative. There's no shortage of documentaries um, that can be watched that focus on laying out the evidence and, uh, and the, the um, historical significance of a worldwide flood taking place in history. Um, you can even travel to the great state of t- Kentucky today and you can visit an amusement park that's centered around the, a giant replica of, of the ark that Noah and his family rode the flood out in. Even at that park, I, I saw um, Babylon B had posted an article this weekend that um, they, had, they had now had a, um, a log ride with a splash ride that was a, um, a system of baptism um, coming off the ark. Of course, it's just Babylon B. It's, 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 not a, it's not a true story, but it's quite entertaining. <laughs> and while the flood narrative um, and how it can be related to history is certain important, especially for establishing um, evidence for the biblical truths that we hold, We tend to overlook the importance of what happened immediately after the flood subsides. You know, there's been a lot of times I've been accused of having a very low 
view of human nature, a very pessimistic view, especially when I'm um, uh, discussing theology with my Roman Catholic relatives. Um, they, they say, well, you have a very low mu- view of mankind with your doctrine of total depravity. I said, well, I, I, I have the, the exact view that the Apostle Paul had, um, writing to the Romans in, in Romans chapter 3, quoting the Psalms. None, um, none is righteous, um, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are run in misery, and the way of peace is they have not known. Well, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's my view, Apostle Paul's view of human nature. And, I, and, I, and, and, and given that view, when I first came to, Roman, uh, to, to um, Reformed theology, and, 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 and that was ingrained and taught, that, that view of human nature, um, I always wondered, how does the world keep on turning? I remember when I was, um, I don't know if many of you know, I served on an aircraft carrier for, for three years. And I remember every day showing up, I, I, I expected the thing to be sunk. You know, why doesn't this thing blow up? I, I see all the things that go on. I see all the, the leaders and the, and the corruption that's going How does this function? And there are a lot of good things in the world today. And if man is so corrupt, how does that happen? Well, today we're going to see and, and that's the importance of this, this covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, the, co- the covenant of common grace. And today's passage found in chapters 8 and 9, we see that God continues to work in redemptive history through a covenantal framework. If you recall the first sermon of this series in Genesis, we saw Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the garden, and they were in covenant with God. Being created as God's image bearer, Adam, by necessity, was obligated to God. As God's image bearer, Adam is to imitate God, to reflect his glory. And then we see God instituting a bilateral covenant between himself and Adam. Not only is Adam to imitate God and reflect his glory, he is also obligated to keep the garden and to righteously exercise his dominion over it by guarding God's creation. We also see in chapter 2 that God gives Adam what can be referred to or thought of as a covenant test forbidding him and his wife from eating from the, from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Adam's reward for keeping God's covenant is eternal life, and his penalty for failure is death. God tells him, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this covenant formed out of the first two chapters of the Bible is known in Reformed theology as the covenant of works. There were conditions that Adam had to meet in order to receive his eternal reward. And there was a steep penalty for his failure. This type of covenant is known as a bilateral covenant, meaning that there were obligations placed on both parties. If Adam was to obey and fulfill his obligations, then God would grant him his eternal reward, access to the tree of life, eternal life, and perfect communion with God forever. But if Adam failed, there would be a steep penalty. And after, and in Genesis chapter 3, we move on and we all know what happens. Adam and Eve, by the instigation of the devil, failed God's covenant test by taking and eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Our first parents were so easily tempted by Satan, tempted by that idea that they could be like God, tempted by the idea that they could set up on their own, that they didn't need God, that they could have things their own way. And as a result of breaking of 
their covenant with God as a result of their disobedience. They brought about the curse of sin and death, not only to themselves, but to all their offspring as well, to all of mankind. And in the midst of that tragedy, God had mercy. And and in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, he has mercy and he institutes a new covenant, a covenant known as the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption, announcing that in due time he would bring forth out of the seed of the woman one who would crush the head of the serpent, a champion, a second Adam who would succeed where Adam had failed and would reverse the curse of sin and death. However, God's covenant of grace was unlike his first covenant, the bilateral covenant of works. This time there were no conditions for Adam to meet or Eve to meet. This time God took it upon himself to unilaterally accomplish the promised redemption himself. And in Genesis chapter 4 we see Eve generally, eagerly, waiting for her promised offspring who would fulfill God's promise, becoming hopeful that the promise would be fulfilled in her firstborn son, Cain, only to have the hope removed when Cain murders his brother Abel. And from the offspring of our first parents, we see two distinct lines emerge, the line of the seed of the serpent from Cain and the line of the seed of the woman from his brother Seth. Remember, it was Seth's descendants that called upon the name of the Lord. And those of us familiar with the book of Genesis know that by the time we get to chapter 6, when man had begun to multiply on the face of the land, complete corruption brought about by sin had set in. Verse 5 of chapter 6, And the Lord saw the wickedness wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we see Noah obey the voice of the Lord, and he builds an ark just as the Lord had commanded him. He entered the ark along with his household and two of every animal, male and female. And then in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and the birds of heaven were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left along with those who were with him in the ark. And in today's passage, we come to the account of the ending of the flood, in which God continues his work of redemption. And it's important for us to note here that in this point of scripture, the seed of the woman who would ultimately defeat Satan, crushing the serpent's head, had not yet come. Yes, all of wicked humanity, except for Noah and his family, had been wiped off the face of the earth. However, both foretold lines, both promised lines, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would continue. It would continue out of Noah's offspring. But in today's verses, we have laid out before us how God works throughout redemptive history to sustain, sustain his creation, to uphold the grand stage on which his redeemed, in which he redeems a people to himself and ushers in a reestablished creation. And today I want to draw our attentions to the workings of our creator by focusing on three aspects of how he works in history. 
Here in these verses, we see a God who restores, number one. Number two, we see a God who sustains. And finally, we see a God who reminds us. A God who restores. In the opening verses of today's chapter, we see that at the beginning in verse 1, that God remembered Noah. Now, it's important here to note that the Hebrew phrase here indicates a recalling or a taking action towards a prior commitment. It's not as if God had forgotten Noah for some time and just left him on the ark and all of a sudden said, hey, what do I do with that guy Noah? No, he's remembering Noah. He's remembering that commitment he made. So what prior commitment was God acting on? Well, if we look back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, we see that God tells Noah, I will establish a covenant with you. I will establish a covenant with you. You see, what we have here is God acting to institute a covenant, that covenant that, the covenant that after he had flooded the world, wiping out all living things. And continuing in verse 1, we start to see echoes of the original creation narrative found in Genesis 1 and 2. Moses tells us that God made a wind blow over the earth and that the, and the water subsided. It's interesting that this Hebrew word used for wind here is the same word used in, in um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, for spirit. Same word. Just as the Spirit of God had acted in creation, so, do did, so too did he act restoring creation after the flood. The waters subside and dry land once again appears. Noah is able to verify this by seeing a dove, which brought, brings back an olive branch. And in verse, 16, in verse 16 of chapter 8, God tells Noah, Go out from the ark and be you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all, uh, with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, we see that echo of Genesis 1 and 2. Noah and, his, Noah and his family entering into a restored creation, commanded to be fruitful and to multiply upon the earth. As the Reformation Study Bible puts it, since the flood is a type of Christian baptism, the coming of Noah and his family out of the ark may be thought of as they're emerging out of the waters of death, of death to new life. And they prefigure the new humanity who would prevail prevail over evil. You see, what we have here in the Old Testament is the same thing that we see time and time again. A type and shadow of one of the aspects of God's redemptive plan. A type and shadow that points us to the day of judgment when wickedness is dealt with once and for all. And the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some of you may be thinking to yourselves, why does he always have to make everything, this type and shadow? Does he always have to make everything in the New Testament, a type and, uh, in the Old Testament, a type and shadow of the new? If I'm honest with you, sometimes I wonder whether I myself make that leap too many times. Well, this time I'm in pretty good comp- company. Let's see what the Apostle Peter taught about the flood and, and its type and shadow in the recreation. Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 7. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. You remember when Noah was building the ark, the scoffers came, telling him that when is this flood going to come, making fun of him, 
They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they they were um, from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, not only did God restore the earth after the flood, but he will bring it to its ultimate consummation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's that's what brings us to our second point, a God who sustains. Notice, notice the first thing that Noah does when he gets out of the ark. He certainly had a lot on his plate, didn't he? I mean, with getting um, creation, with getting the world and society going again. But the first thing he does is to worship. See, Noah has his priorities straight. In verse 20, Noah builds an altar and he takes some of every clean animal and offers a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Lord was pleased with Noah's worship. Going on to verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. We see here that God again works in redemptive history through a covenant, a covenant where he decrees to preserve creation and humanity, a a covenant um, through which he dispenses his common grace to all of humanity, to the elect as well as the reprobate across all creeds and cultures, across all nations, pagan and Christian alike. Now it's important here that we stop for a moment and make sure to clearly distinguish between God's common, God's common grace given here to all humanity and God's special or saving grace he gives to his elect. God's saving grace bestows upon God's elects the blessings of regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption, and eternal life. It redeems helpless sinners from the curse of sin. However, God's common grace given here in Genesis chapters 8 and 9 does not redeem, but it does preserve. It does sustain all of creation along with all living things. You see, before the flood in Genesis chapter 6, we get a picture of what the world would have looked like before God bestowed his common grace upon it. Genesis chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And his covenant made with Noah, commonly referred to as uh, the Noahic covenant, God uh, decrees to never again strike down every living creature. And he does this despite the sinful hearts of men. We uh, We don't even deserve his special grace, much less his common grace. Verse 21, he reminds us the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, it is out of his mercy and grace that humanity is allowed to continue. To continue that, so that his redemptive covenant made in Genesis 3.15 could be fulfilled 
so that in the fullness of time, Christ would come. And in his sustainment of his creation, God assures us that the seasons, that day and night, cold and heat, would continue. A pattern that would always control and stabilize the world. Conditions that would allow for the continued provision of food to sustain all living things. And those conditions would not cease. In the beginning of chapter 9, we see another echo of original creation when God's blessing is given to Noah and his family and he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. The human race would go on. It would continue to grow larger upon the earth and God's redemptive plan would continue to unfold. Once again, we see that man is once again given dominion over all of the animals, delivering them into his hand. In addition to the plants being given for food in the original creation, animals now find themselves on the menu. Just think we could have never eaten bald crawfish if had, had this not been given. Surely now one of the reasons that the animals um, now had fear and dread of humans upon them. And in verses 5 and 6, we see that a justice system is established to stay the hand of the wicked. Humans are given judicial authority to punish the evil actions of others. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. What this does here is it lays the framework for the authority of governing officials, who, as Romans 13 tells us, have been appointed by God. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And just in case we may start to question whether or not what is being here, what is being established here, is indeed a covenant between God and all creation and humanity. In verses 9 through 13, we have God speak directly to Noah and his sons. Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living thing that is with you, the birds, of, uh, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a, f- a flood to destroy the earth. Now notice the conditions here of the Noahic covenant. The covenant of common grace. As my former pastor Mike Brown and Zach Keel put in their book, Sacred Bond, uh, Covenant Theology Explored, they write, The only term of the covenant is God keeping his promise. There are no terms for humanity or creation to meet for the covenant to continue. The covenant is a unilateral promise of God. It is by definition unbreakable. There are no conditional terms whereby the covenant can be broken. You see, loved ones, just as God and his covenant of redemption in the garden had done, there is nothing here left for man to do. God does it all. Despite human depravity, despite our rebellion against him and breaking his holy law, despite our utter uselessness for, what, for the purpose in which we were made, God sustains creation, providing springtime and harvest, day and night, provisions for food and government to stay the hand of the evildoer. He upholds creation and has promised never again to wipe out all living things from the earth. And as God's people, we can take comfort knowing that this is all done to provide a stage on which his redemptive drama will play out, to provide an arena for Christ to come. Given that we live in a world with so many distractions that compete for our attention and time, we live lives that are often filled with mundane challenges that wear us down, 
We experience misfortune, betrayal, loneliness, sickness, and death. We look at the news media of today and we see tragedy all around us. How can the world go on? These circumstances which constantly confront us can cause us to forget God's promise. We can often feel alone in our struggles, fearing what the future may hold. But God knows our weakness. He knows our weakness and he accommodates us with reminders of his promises. That brings us to our last point of focus. He is a God who reminds. Chapter 9, verse 13. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And I will bring the clouds over the earth and the bow and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between you and me and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature for all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You see, God's covenant of grace is for all flesh that is on the earth. And he gives us a reminder of that promise that can be seen by all. It's not like the covenant signs um, of God's redemptive covenants, such as circumcision and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those signs are reserved only to those whom which God bestows his saving grace, his redemptive grace, those of us in the church. But God's bow in the clouds is seen by all. God sustains the elect and the reprobate alike through his noadic covenant. And when we see his bow, what we often call a rainbow in the clouds, We're reminded of that promise, reminded that it is impossible for his covenant to be broken. No matter how grim and hopeless things may appear, we are to remember that God is in control. Seed time, harvest, day and night will not cease, and the world will keep on turning. Life on earth will never be wiped out again. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have a much greater reason to rejoice. You see, because in, because, you see, because in God's restored and preserved creation, he has provided that stage for which his redemptive drama would take place. If the entire world had been destroyed, that drama could have never played out. From the descendants of Noah, both, lines of the, uh, both the lines of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would continue. Both would receive sustainment through God's common grace. And in the fullness of time, God's promised champion would come. Jesus Christ, who lived that life of righteousness that we ourselves could have never lived. Who upon going to the cross at Calvary, he willingly took on himself the wrath that we deserve. Crying out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken in our place. And he conquered death by being raised on the third day. And he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, having been given authority over all nations. And all of us who put our faith and trust in Christ will stand blameless when he returns at the end of this fading evil age, being covered by his righteousness, adopted into his holy family, granted eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And in this time between the already and the not yet, He continues to preserve and sustain his creation so that the good news of who he is and what he has accomplished can continue to go out to all the nations. And until he has gathered the full number of his elect, 
the world will keep on turning until he returns to bring his kingdom to full consummation and completely, once and for all, crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. Amen.